So I think most of you guys are probably aware that um, normally every year in Bethlehem there are big celebrations of the Nativity. This year there are no public liturgies for the Nativity, and there's nothing happening in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Square, the Manger Square, because of the hostilities in the Middle East. One topic that I've thought about frequently over a long period of time uh, is the fact that the Savior whose birth we celebrate on Christmas was born and remains the king of a particular people, of a particular race. He's the king of Israel, or as he's frequently and significantly named in the gospel, the king of the Jews. Especially that shows up in the infancy narratives and then again in the Passion. Over the course of Advent in the meditations that we did, about half of the readings came directly from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, Joel, Michael, the Psalms, Numbers, and Zephaniah. And this year actually was a little heavier on New Testament readings than some of our other cycles of of Advent meditations. In the Christmas carols that we sing, we have a constant repetition of the theme of Jesus as king and of the phrase, Christ is born, which is a proclamation of the birth of the Messiah of Israel. I've given you guys a, uh, I've sent everybody a copy of uh, an article by our friend Rabbi Mark Kinzer called, Is Jesus Still King of the Jews? That, and I'll draw some insights from there, although he takes it in a different direction that I think is worth uh, meditating on as well in the season. So I want to talk a little bit about Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus is, of course, the King of all men, and he's that particularly in virtue of his divinity. God, as the Psalms say, is king of all the earth. And so the Jews, in their blessings, say over and over again, as we do as well, blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe. Revelation gives us the song of Moses, and of of the Lamb. Great and wonderful are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who shall not fear and glorify your name, O Lord? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship you, for your judgments have been revealed. This is really the song of Moses and of the Lamb, who is God, come in the flesh. And for that reason, is king over all the earth and judge of all men. Revelation proclaims him to be the word of God. And as the word of God, the word who was in the beginning with God and was God, he is king of kings and lord of lords, meaning his dominion is over all authorities. As the incarnate son, however, Jesus is, first of all, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, the king of a specific people, as the New Testament makes pretty clear. 
the genealogy in Matthew traces his royal lineage as a son of David and as legitimate king, therefore, of Israel. The Gentile sages come to honor him shortly after his birth as king of the Jews. And for that very reason, Herod, <clears throat> who is in fact a pretender and an Idumean, wants to destroy him and ends up slaughtering all the males that he can get in the local area under the age of two years old. In all four Gospels, the constant issue in Jesus' ministry is whether he is the Christ. That's really the heart of the issue when he goes before the Sanhedrin. Are you the Christ? Tell us. In John, interestingly, in the dialogue with Pilate, that gets a lot more attention, uh, before his execution, the crucial issue is, are you king of the Jews? And in all four Gospels, and whenever you find something in all four Gospels, it's a sign that it's important, that it's significant. Over Christ on the cross is put a placard that proclaims him king of the Jews. And not, as the Jewish authorities demanded, this man said he was king of the Jews, but king of the Jews. So as we think about the coming of the Son of God to his own, as the Gospel of John puts it, the question might occur to us, and at least it's occurred to many of the students I've taught over time, why the long preparation? Why did the Lord not send his son for so many scores of generations? Why all this long, often tortured, frustrating Old Covenant history? <clears throat> and for some, the answer seems to be that the whole purpose was that it's long and frustrated and torturing. Um, that it's kind of a record of sinful uh, human sinfulness, and that the Jews are the great example of our moral perfidy. And that's what their history is all about. That obviously is pretty simplistic, and it's a little bit hard <clears throat> to reconcile with, say, Hebrews chapter 11. You know, the great examples of faith from the Old Covenant. So on the opposite side, you also have people who see the Old Testament as kind of a, a, a collection of heroic examples that you can draw from. And you see this regularly with David. You know, David, uh, the great king, the great moral example. But, in fact, you, you, you run into a little bit of trouble in the unfortunate incident with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And in fact, it's easy to gloss over the fact that David doesn't appear to have actually been that great a father or possibly even a model husband. So obviously neither of those caricatures will quite fit the bill. The Old Testament is kind of a repository of heroic stories or the Old Testament as an, a, uh, just an unmitigated history of human sinfulness and faithlessness. 
the case studies are a little too complicated and history is a little too expansive for either of those boxes. So let me offer a few observations, not exhaustive, but at least a suggestive list in response to the question, why the long preparation? And the first observation has to do with what's necessary for a true incarnation. Jesus did not descend with a human body like a spaceman, but he was a real human being. And if he's going to be a real human being, he's got to enter the world with a history and a family and a language. He's got to be a real human being, and a real human being has to come from somewhere and have a history. So if the womb of Mary is a place of his bodily gestation, the people of Israel is a communal womb of his human nature. The preparation, the communal gestation, you might say, for the coming of the Son of God. And Paul seems to point to something like that. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That is under this law that Paul's talking about in Galatians at this point, the law of the people of Israel, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. <coughs> so through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. <coughs> so Christ came when the time had fully come, born of woman, born of a woman of this people under this law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and become heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of the promises that were given to the people of Israel, especially, Paul says in Galatians, the promise to Abraham for what this people would be. So Paul says at one time, we Gentiles, he says you Gentiles, meaning a Jew, but we can say we Gentiles, with the exception of Dave Quintana, who's the only Jew among us, um, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's interesting. We Gentiles were alienated not only from Christ, but from the commonwealth of Israel, of whom he was the Christ. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. And then Paul says in the following chapter of Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to us, or revealed to us holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, that is the mystery of Christ, is how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
So the great mystery, the great secret, is that the Gentiles are going to become heirs of the promises given to Israel, beginning with Abraham. <coughs> and we enter into salvation only through the people of Israel and through the one who is the embodiment of Israel. So God was preparing for us to come to salvation through a real incarnation through one who is the embodiment of the promises made to his own people. Second observation is that God's purpose all along has been the formation of a people. Salvation is not just an individual affair, and the people that God has drawn together is not a collection of individuals. You cannot become a Christian on your own. Literally. Why? You can't baptize yourself. And in fact, you can't be baptized until you've been taught. And so the Ethiopian eunuch says, how, how, how will I know unless somebody teaches me? Salvation is not just individual. It's a social affair because we're social animals. And so we can only be saved as part of a people because you're only saved when you're part of a people. That's the whole point, is to be part of a people who are joined to God. Think about the fact that the second sin in the Bible is a matter of envy leading to anger and then fratricide. So what happens after the rebellion of Adam is the people begins to break apart. Remember the consequences of the Tower of Babel, which is a confusion of tongues and the scattering of the peoples of the earth. So sin fractures God's work and makes it impossible to communicate with one another and to be united with one another. And so in order to attain his purpose, according to what God has revealed to us, the Lord not only needs to heal individuals of the cancer of sin, but he has to mold them again into a corporate entity that's united and harmonious. And so over and over again, he begins with a family. He begins with the family of Noah, and then the family, not just Abraham, but his whole household. He begins with the family of Abraham, and then he narrows down by election the descendants of Abraham to the descendants of Jacob, held together by a covenant and a law and dwelling in a homeland. And God gives this people, this very particular concrete people, a special privilege and a special burden, which is to become the nation from whom his very own son will be born. And this is true in the new covenant. We enter the people of God only through baptism, and we're baptized into the Son of God, who is the embodiment of Israel. And we're formed in and with that people. God is still forming for himself a people, training us to renounce your religion, and to become holy and zealous for good deeds. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, 
and they shall be his people, Revelation says, and God shall be their God. And our final destiny is a city, not a collection of hermitages. So this is very part of the very purpose of God. And thus, we Gentiles, thirdly, are grafted into the people of Israel. God hasn't started over, but he's joined us to what he's doing in Israel. And so this history has become our history. So it's perfectly appropriate for us to meditate through the season of Advent on these passages from the prophets, from the history of Israel, from the Psalms. The way of life of the Christian people is the way of life of the people of Israel as God intended it in his son. The worship, the moral life, the institutions are really born of the people of Israel. The scripture has become our scripture, understood in light of its fulfillment in Christ, but not understood apart from the people of Israel, literally. And so think about the fact that virtually the entire first generation of Christian teachers were Jews because they knew what to teach, because they had the word of God now understood in the light of Christ. Think about the fact that Origen and Jerome, maybe two of maybe the, the two greatest exegetes of the early church, both went to Palestine in order to see the places where Jesus had walked and in order to be tutored in Hebrew and then to translate the scriptures for us. Think about the fact that the great achievements in medieval theology, like the great scholastics, really came on the heels of a renaissance in the study of the Old Testament in the 12th century. No, no renaissance in the study of the Old Testament in the 12th century, no Thomas Aquinas. And they learned from the rabbis. So you find the influence of the rabbis in the teachings of the great medievals. John Calvin wrote commentaries on the whole Pentateuch, Joshua, the Psalms, all the major prophets, and all the minor prophets. And he obviously thought there was good reason for that. <laughs> They're not outdated. So we need to read and meditate on the Old Testament and draw life and nourishment from it. And it's concreteness the promises that it makes, the hopes that it expresses, the sounds and sights and tastes of the Old Testament. So we don't take the Old Testament and apply it to our lives. We enter into it as a revelation of God's intention and purpose for us. So catechisms are a long tradition of the Christian people. You know, Luther's uh, large and small catechisms, or the catechism of the Council of Trent. In my own tradition, I'm very grateful for the catechism of the Catholic Church and all the confusion it's dispelled over the last 30 years or so, but they don't replace the Scripture because you can't get an executive summary of the Scripture. <laughs> 
it's not just a repository of doctrines, but it's the world we enter into. And most of it's the world of the Old Covenant. Final observation. As ingrafted heirs of the promises first announced to and fulfilled within the people of Israel, we must honor the Jewish people. We must honor the people of Israel. We must pray for the fulfillment of God's purpose in them and for them and through them. We need to speak of them and speak to them with honor and gratitude, recognizing our common heritage and even our common destiny. I'm not making a political commentary on the state of Israel or its political or military policies. But I am making a spiritual comment on the fact that we're all younger brothers. And as good biblical Christians, we need to honor our older brothers. We need to pray for our older brother, the people of Israel, that the Lord's purpose might be fulfilled for us as it can only be fulfilled when his purpose is also fulfilled in them.